James chapter 1, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. I would encourage you to keep your Bible open, even after we've read it today, because this is one of those verse-by-verse sermons that you're accustomed to. So keep your Bible open, the book of James, James 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask his help in understanding. Lord, you are good. You are creating in us good to glorify you, to be a first fruits of the new creation. So Lord, we we read this and know what you're calling us to. Would you give us a desire to obey it, to understand this deeply, to hear it, and to do it, and so glorify you in the doing. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there is a mirror theme in literature. Going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, people have always found mirrors to have a peculiar mystique about them. There are mirror stories in Greek mythology. Vulcan and Venus had magic mirrors. I won't tell you about those vulgar mirrors. Perseus used a mirror to defeat Medusa. Narcissus, totally in love with himself, stared into his mirrored reflection in the water so long that he turned into a flower. And Echo, The girl who was crushing on Narcissus waited for him so long that she turned into her namesake, an echo. There are mirror stories in Japanese literature. A dying mother gives her daughter the Matsuyama mirror, and she tells her that it's magic. So whenever the girl looks into the mirror, she can see her mother even after she's dead and gone. Mirror isn't actually magic. The girl just looks like her mother, but that's kind of the point of the story. The brothers Grimm told the story of a mirror that allowed an evil queen to know who the most beautiful woman in all the land was. Hans Christian Andersen wrote of a magic mirror made by the devil, which had the effect of magnifying evil and diminishing in, in, the, in the image the good. And then it was, a, 
It was broken and scattered into all the world, and a little bit of that mirror ended up lodged into the heart of a girl who became the Snow Queen, and the story is a whole lot darker than Disney would have you know in Frozen. Although Elsa could learn a thing or two from James's instruction instead of letting the storm rage on. Alfred Tennyson's Lady of Shallot can only view the outside world through a mirror, and the Beast and Beauty and the Beast had a very similar mirror. Lewis Carroll's Magic Mirror led Alice into an enchanted world where everything was backwards. Tolkien wrote of the Magic Mirror of Gladriel, where you could see into the deeper reality of the present and the future. In J.K. Rowling's Pensieve, is similar only it's more connected to people's memories. And of course, we today have magic mirrors that we carry in our pockets and where you can take a picture of yourself with this mirror and then recreate yourself in the way that you want others to see you and post it for all the world to see. But like those magic mirrors and all the fairy tales, there's a cost. You have to pay a little bit of your soul. And though the Insta world sees a beautiful image, It's fake, and you know it, and so you end up empty and anxious and depressed. Cheery, isn't it? (laughs) Sorry. All of the magic mirrors in fairy tales, even in Zuckerberg's fairy tales, are just that. They're fairy tales. But our text this morning tells us of a truly marvelous mirror, one that a born-again Christian can look into and see his or her true self. And James's instruction for us is to gaze intently into this magic mirror and not forget who we truly are in Christ. So we left off a, a couple weeks ago seeing from James that our sin doesn't come from the trials that God has given us, doesn't come from our external circumstances, and it doesn't come from God. Our sin comes from where? It comes from our own hearts, our, our corrupted desires, those corrupted desires that come into us as a result of the fall, and those lead us into temptation, and they lead us into sin. We saw from James very clearly that God ordains trials for us, and they help us to turn to Him and away from our old sin nature. God is creating in us new creatures in Christ. We are, we are maturing through God's sanctification process, we're maturing in Christ's likeness. So the follow-up to that instruction that he's been giving us through the first chapter is what we see here in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, and that, that know this is like, pay, pay careful attention to this. After all that you just heard from me, pay attention to this. And then he gives us that exhortation to let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because, he says... Your anger is not producing the righteousness of God in you. So what's going on here? This this is connected to the previous section. So look back to verse 18. God has brought us forth as Christians. If we're born again Christians, he's brought us forth by the word of truth. And he's creating us as a sort of first fruits of the new creation. So he's doing something in us. And James is saying here, your impulse to hear yourself talk, your impulse to to become angry, that isn't coming from what God is doing in you. 
That's you. That's your old self, and it's actually a lot more dangerous than you think. So we, we tend to believe in our own self-righteousness. We tend to believe that our, our old sin nature is only responsible for the truly bad stuff, right? Lying, stealing, cheating, murder, adultery, and all those. Th- but but, but the, the most obvious place, and we see this throughout the New Testament, but the most obvious place that our old sin nature flashes through is in what we say. And that's especially the case when we're angry. Our intuitions are often reliant on the old self. And by intuitions, you know what I mean. There are are instincts, those things that we do without thinking about them. Those intuitions are reliant on the old self, oftentimes, the, the sin nature. And so when we immediately speak... When, when, when we have something to say, or when we immediately become angry when we are offended, that's because we're relying on that sin nature. We don't realize it. That the sin nature puts itself, the old sin nature, puts itself at the center of the universe. This is what Adam and Eve chose, right? When, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this is, I go back to this that Genesis chapter 3 all the time because Genesis chapter 3 is foundational to understanding what it means to be human. So we go back to this a lot. But Adam and Eve, when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were choosing themselves at this, as the center of the universe. Rather than being living as subjects in God's kingdom, they preferred to live as king and queen of their own kingdoms. And that impulse, that same impulse to be the center is what drives us to to blather out loud every thought that comes across our minds. And that, that same impulse is what causes us to get angry at every little offense. Because if, if I'm the center of the universe, if I'm the king, then obviously what I have to say is more important than what you have to say. In fact, what I have to say is so important, I'm surprised that there aren't people lining up for blocks just to listen to me. I'm surprised that anyone in my presence would even want to try to say anything. They should be listening to me all the time, all wise, all knowing, sage of the kingdom. And none of us say that, right? I mean, I hope. None of us would say that. And I doubt, I doubt that any of us have even consciously thought that. But an unbridled tongue communicates that. This isn't the way of wisdom. Proverbs tells us the way of wisdom, and there are lots of Proverbs about the unbridled tongue. Proverbs 10.19. If you want to take notes, I'll give you the the references. Proverbs 10.19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18, 6 and 7. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Proverbs 18, 13. A lot of these are in Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears... It is his folly and shame. The Proverbs are saying that it is the fool, 
the man or woman so caught up in themselves, so confident in their own opinion that they aren't aware of what's behind that open mouth. But Proverbs 18.20 shows us what's behind it. Proverbs 18.20, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He's satisfied by the yield of his lips. That's imp- Let me just say that one again. Because oftentimes we think we eat fruit, right? And it goes down. But no, this is it's, it's backwards. The fruit from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. So in, in ancient physiology, the stomach was understood as the place of the passions and desires and, and craving. And if a person is craving that others hear him and listen to him, then the only way to satisfy that craving is to do what? To talk to speak. So the proverb says he is satisfied by what he says himself, by the yield of his lips. And this is the danger that James is warning us of. It's not that talking is bad. Talking to people is not bad. It's a good desire to be in friendship with someone. And friends talk. It's a good desire to encourage others. Proclaiming the gospel requires that we say something, doesn't it? So not all speaking is bad. In fact, Proverbs says as much. He says that the tongue of the wise brings healing. But there is this self-centered part of our old nature that loves to hear itself talk. And if you find yourself craving the ears of others, it's likely that you were being led by those old corrupted desires. That is, desires of your old self, your sin nature. And you'll see where James is going with this in just a moment. But he says we should be slow to speak because it's hard for us to to determine whether or not we are speaking from our old nature, our sin nature in Adam, or our new nature in Christ. We are terrible judges of our own hearts. We aren't the best judges when it comes to our own hearts. Therefore, be slow to speak, be cautious, be prayerful, be humble. And because we aren't the best judges of, our, of what's in our hearts, we have to be extremely careful when it comes to our anger. 99.9% of the time, the anger that we feel welling up in us is from the old man, our old nature, that corrupted desires part of your hearts. Sometimes, yes, I know you're, some of you are just arguing with me right now. Sometimes I'm angry about good things. Sometimes you are. Sometimes you're angry about something that God is also angry about, what we call righteous anger, right? You're angry with that, that someone is, is rebelling against God. This is someone you love, someone you've discipled. They're rebelling against God, and that makes you angry. Angry when someone abuses someone else or, or takes advantage of someone else. Angry that abortionists are allowed to operate with impunity in our nation. But let's be honest, most of the time, most of the time we're just angry because someone else isn't bowing down to our desires. We're angry because that person couldn't read our minds. We're angry because that person didn't answer our text immediately or when we wanted them to. We're angry because that person is late and that's putting us out. Or we're angry because someone did something that embarrassed us, made us look bad. Or be angry angry because someone else is incompetent. Or they're not as capable as we are in some task. 
Or we're angry because the baby's upset or awake or is interrupting our movie or our screen time. We're angry because our elderly parents need too much help or we're angry because our grown kids need too much help. You see a pattern here? The vast majority of the time, like huge, just assume it's all the time. Just assume it's all, all the time, most of the time, we're angry because we recognize ourselves to be the king and that person doesn't. And, and, and the problem with that is that in our corrupt little kingdoms, we are also the judge and the jury and the executioners. As judges, we make, in our minds at least, perfect, infallible judgments, all-knowing about the situation. As jury, we decide the guilt or innocence of the defendant, and as executioners, we levy out the punishment. That's the problem with our kingdoms. And this is why anger is such a problem. More than any other emotion, we seek to justify our right to be angry. Because we, You don't have to defend yourself when you're happy, right? You don't have to defend yourself usually if you're sad about something, unless you're sad all the time. But if we're angry, it's almost certain that we're angry towards someone else because they violated some little law of our little kingdom, and so we have to justify that emotion. What James is saying is that because your anger usually comes from those selfish desires, even if, and this is something new, even if you've come up with some worldly euphemism for those desires, like boundaries, it's still usually rooted in your selfish desires. Therefore, you should be very slow to become angry. If you're a Christian, when you feel yourself becoming angry, James says, slow down. Recognize that in all likelihood, that whatever's welling up in you isn't justified. Your anger is very likely coming from a place of selfish desires, at least partly. Therefore, humble yourself, acknowledge that you are a citizen of Jesus' kingdom and not your own. And in his kingdom, God is the only king worthy of worship and reverence. He's the only perfect judge. While your judgments are biased towards yourself, right? Flawed by your sin. He's the perfect jury who can see into hearts in a way that you cannot. He knows motivations in a way that we can't. He's the perfect and righteous executioner, and he's coming again. We don't possess, we don't have in us the perfections of God in judgment. And it's prideful and wrong to pretend that we do. The fact of the matter, it matter is that, that we deserve a greater judgment than we can even imagine. We forget that, don't we? When we're angry with someone else, it's usually because we've put ourselves in the judge's seat. But we are the ones who deserve judgment, greater than we can imagine, but God has shown us mercy in Christ. And, and, and that acknowledgement, when you, when you acknowledge that, it leads you to repentance for trying to make yourself out to be God and judge. So, so then that repentance leads you to repent of your anger, to turn to Christ, to receive his mercy, and to take that patience that God has been showing you all this time, and you model that patience towards the person that you're angry with. And even if they've sinned against you, which they probably have, in meekness, in Christ, show them mercy. 
because you've been shown mercy. In humility, realize that the, the impulse that you're operating from, that intuition that got you worked up in the first place, is very well likely influenced by your sin nature. Therefore, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. God is working in you a new creation. And your impulsive words, and my impulsive words, and our short fuses aren't a whole lot of help. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, that, 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 that righteousness that God is creating in you. Therefore, therefore, rather than relying on your anger and your opinions to be your guide, James says, put those things off. Look at, look at verse 21. Therefore, he says, put away, put away, put away all filthiness. And, and the picture here is, is, is of taking off dirty, grimy clothes. This is an allusion to, uh, allusion, allusion to that, that prophetic heavenly scene in Zechariah chapter 3. Write, write down Zechariah chapter 3 and go back and read it later on. But in Zechariah 3, Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord, which we've learned is, is Jesus, right? So he's standing before Christ, and, he's, and, the, and Joshua is clothed in filthy garments. Exactly what Zechariah is, clothed in, in filthy garments. And the angel of the Lord says to the heavenly attendants, remove the filthy garments from him. And then the high priest says, uh, and then to the high priest, the angel of the Lord says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is an absolutely beautiful picture of what Christ has done. James is giving us a picture of that scene when he says, Put off those old filthy garments. Because Christ has already taken them off. Those garments have already been taken off of us. According to Scripture, before God, we are already pure and clean and holy in Christ. Because of Christ's work. The instruction here is to live out that heavenly reality. We are to live as a forgiven and made new people. We are to live as those for whom Christ has already accomplished our cleansing and justification before God. Live as those who have been empowered by the Spirit to live out our salvation from sin. The problem is this. In our flesh, we still have this, what verse 21 calls, rampant wickedness. It's a strong phrase. One thing of wickedness is not running rampant in my life. But that, that word that we translate rampant could also be translated surplus or excess. He's saying in a sense here that you've already been made clean by Christ, but you insist and I insist on holding on to the sins of our old lives. So, so picture this. Imagine if, if you rescued an orphaned child from living on the sidewalks downtown. When you found her, she was wearing a crusty, filthy, oversized T-shirt that smells like pot smoke and heroin and old beer and urine, and it's got holes in it, and it's bloodstained and muddy, and there's just no chance of making it clean. 
So you throw the shirt into the garbage. And you care for the little girl by washing her and giving her a haircut and, and an entire wardrobe of, of new, beautiful, clean clothes suitable for life in your home because you've adopted her and her new life is with you. And yet, again and again and again, she keeps going to the dumpster and digging out that nasty old shirt and putting it on. That's the, that's the picture of returning to our old instincts. That's us when we choose to follow the corrupted desires of the old self. That's us when we let our tempers flare up and become angry. That's us when we're running our mouths. Rather than going back to who we were before we were born again into Christ, we are to put off that old self. And instead, look at the rest of verse 21. Instead, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Our prideful, haughty anger will not produce the righteousness of God. But the implanted word, that does produce the righteousness of God. Your flesh cannot save you, but the implanted word is saving you. So in meekness, that's the opposite of haughtiness and pride, right? In meekness, receive the implanted word. Like, All right, I'm going to do that. What's the implanted word? <laughs> what, it, what is it? Well, think, think back to the scripture reading that Joel read for us in Jeremiah 31 from earlier. God had promised to make a new covenant with his people wherein God's law would be put in them, implanted in them. That's the implanted word. So let me give you a little background here. The old covenant refers to the sacred contract between God and his people wherein God gave his people an external law written on stone, right? Think Ten Commandments coming down from Sinai, an external law written on stone through which obedience to that law brought blessings and disobedience brought curses. That's the old covenant. The problem with that covenant wasn't so much the covenant itself, and it wasn't the law itself. The problem was the people. The people couldn't obey the law, and the law couldn't transform the people. The law did not have the power to change the stony, rebellious heart of man, and so it only had the effect of condemning the people, cursing the people. The law brought death. But this new covenant that is promised in Jeremiah, that's good, it's coming from Jeremiah's standpoint, but it can only come when the old covenant was fulfilled. Well, Jesus of Nazareth the promised Messiah, offspring of David, the representative of Israel, God's people, he fulfilled the old covenant through spirit-empowered, perfect obedience to God, and he took on himself the curse that Israel deserved when they broke the covenant again and again and again. He, Christ, has made final atonement for sin with his own blood. He's cleansed us, made us justified before God, entering into the presence of God. He poured out his spirit who unites us to Christ through faith. So now, trusting in Christ's work for you, you too, just as Christ was, you are empowered by the spirit for obedience to God. And the spirit in us is the fulfillment 
of the promise of the law, the word of God, the will of God written on our hearts. Whereas the external law written on tablets of stone gave us no internal desire to follow God's will, now we have the Spirit, which is God Himself, and through the Spirit, we can desire to follow God's will. So the Spirit in us is the bringer of the will of God to our hearts, which is the law of God written on our hearts. He is, the Spirit is, the implanted word. James uses this implanted word language Because a a part of his argument is that God gives us wisdom, and his wisdom is found in the Word. So you read that in James, and you're going, I don't see that anywhere else. Well, look to Paul, and Paul in his writings more often uses language, language like the Spirit in you. Because the Spirit stands in contrast to the flesh. What we need to, to see in order to understand our text is that James and Paul are teaching the same thing. The Spirit in you is the implanted word. And Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 3. God has brought you forth by the word of truth. That's what verse 18 says. So look at James 1.18. God has brought you forth by his own will through the word of truth. And he's brought you forth by that word of truth, which is the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so hearing the word of truth and believing has made you alive And the implantation of the word is the will of God written on your heart. Spirit living in you. This makes sense with the next few verses. All right. So now that you're kind of seeing the mechanics of what James is referring to, look at verse 22. Verse 22, for instance, says to to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So now, 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 if you were talking about the spirit, you would say, do the spirit. And that doesn't make sense grammatically, does it? But when you say the word is implanted in you, do the word, that makes sense. This is James's way of saying, walk by the spirit. But there's a slight difference. We, we have within us, because we've been born again and implanted with the spirit, we have within us the ability to follow the path of righteousness, the way of wisdom, the will of God. Whereas our old self Before we were born again, our old self was in bondage to sin. And and, and so when we heard the law, it was repulsive to us. In the new self, by the Spirit, the Word of God, that is the Scriptures, they're sweet to us. The Spirit in us desires to obey God's Word, the Bible. So it makes sense that God's Word would lead us to be slow to speak and slow to become angry. And as we see that instruction throughout the Proverbs, that's what God's Word says. And by the Spirit in us, we're quick to listen, especially quick to listen to the Word of God. What we are to be hearing, what he's getting at here, is we are to be hearing the Word that is in us, the Word of God also that we see in the Scriptures. So, what is the lesson then? Read the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures. Place yourself under the teaching of the Scriptures. Read and listen to books about the Scriptures. That's hearing the Word. And that's what is good to us, what is sweet to us, when we have the Word implanted, the Spirit implanted in us. And if you've truly been born again, and the Spirit is in you, if the Word has been implanted in you, then what happens is that you also have the desire to do what the Scriptures say. Your desires, remember how we these old corrupted desires of the flesh, those are transformed by the Spirit. Your desires transformed by the Spirit 
through Christ's work of defeating the power of the flesh, your desires are now to do what God's word says. That's why in verse 25, he calls this implanted word the law of liberty. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, this could be translated as abides or continues, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In Christ, we no longer hear the moral law of God as condemnation. We hear it and we love it. We desire to obey it because the Spirit of God is in us. The Word is in us. See how it's working? I want to clarify here just briefly. I know it's a little bit confusing to do I say Word or Spirit, Word or Spirit. The Word is in us. The, the, the Word implanted in you does not mean that when you were born again as a Christian, you suddenly knew all of the Bible. Rather, it does mean when you're born again into Christ, because the Spirit is in you, when you hear the Bible read, it is like hearing the sound of home. It is sweet to you, as I said. You long for it. You want to do it more. You want to obey it. So, so in Christ, when we look into God's Word, that is, when we read and meditate on God's Word, we see ourselves as we truly are. We see in the Word that we are sinners in need of God's grace. And we see that we've been shown God's grace and that we have the Spirit. We see that in the Word. And so the more we reflect on that reality, the more we abide in this truth and continue in this truth, the more we will live according to the will of God, the instruction of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God. The Word of God then in this regard is is like a magic mirror. Gazing into the Word of God as those who trust, whose trust is in Christ, we are transformed by the Word. We see in the Bible the fulfillment, the, the, the connectiveness. We see Christ as the fulfillment of the Word. We see ourselves in Christ. And, and, and we live accordingly. We grow in our delight to obey God's Word. That's kind of the the basis for his argument here. However, if you look, look again at verse 22. If you hear the word of God in the scriptures and you don't do what it says, then James says you're deceiving yourself. There's, There's a problem here. He's talking here about someone who is pretending to be a Christian. So if I just go to church if I participate in Bible studies, and if I even share my opinion in those Bible studies, and if I listen to to positive and encouraging family radio, and and if I read my Bible every day, then that's what makes a Christian, right? No. That's the deception James is talking about. And self-deception is the worst kind. You've persuaded yourself that you're truly saved simply because you give your ears to the Word. God doesn't just want your ears. He wants your heart. He wants your whole being. Someone who is justified before God, and that's the root of our salvation, right? Someone truly saved is necessarily being transformed by the Holy Spirit through the Word. 
Now, mind you, your, your obedience to the word isn't what saves you. Christ's work for you is. But and this is James' point. If you aren't obeying God's word, if your life does not reflect any obedience to the word, no, no, uh, you're not following the word in any meaningful way, then there's no evidence that the Spirit is in you, right? Because the Spirit in us is what sees the Word as good and prompts us to obedience. And if, there's, the Spirit is not, if, the, if the Spirit is not in you, prompting you to obey God's Word, then that's because you have not been united to Christ through faith, and therefore, you're actually not a Christian. No fruit of obedience is a symptom of no root of true faith in Christ. That's a fatal problem. James says in verses 22 or 23 and 24, that's like the person who looks into the mirror and then walks away forgetting what they're like. So, so just picture this. You're reading the Bible regularly. You're listening to preaching. You, you've been doing this for years, maybe decades but it's having no effect on you. You're you're not truly understanding what the Bible is about. You're not truly seeing Christ as glorious in the Scriptures. You're not seeing your sin as horrendous. You're not being driven to repentance and faith and obedience to the Word. You're just hearing it. Not, not, Not realizing how you must be transformed by the Spirit. It's like, he says, it's like looking at a mirror Seeing that your hair is a greasy mess, you've got ketchup stain on your shirt and dirt on your face and broccoli stuck in your teeth, and then you walk away thinking, oh, great. (laughs) Everything's okay. What was the point of even looking in the mirror? What is the point of hearing the Bible? If If that describes you, and you're realizing right now, and that bothers you, as it should, go to Christ in faith. Recognize that the reason your heart does not joyfully receive the word is because you have not received Christ in faith. You are seeing him from afar, and you don't have any animosity toward him. You don't feel any hate towards him. You're not bothered by his existence. But the reason you don't desire to obey his word is because you don't Love him. So see, now see what he's done on the cross. See his worthiness of worship. See the power of his salvation and receive him in faith. And then begin to see your attitude towards the word change. Someone who has been brought into the new life Through the word of truth, as verse 18 says, and who has been implanted with the word, the spirit, as verse 21 says, that is someone who has truly been united to Christ through faith. And that person who's someone who is, look again at verse 25, that's the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, God's word, and continues in it. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So so made new by the word of truth and implanted with the word, the spirit, we seek to abide in the will of God. I want to do God's will. That's a desire that Christians have. If you don't have a desire to do God's will, you're probably not a Christian is what James is saying. 
So we seek to abide in the will of God through Christ, and this liberates us from our sin, which is why it's called the law of liberty. That's why the, the word is called the law of liberty. Following God's instruction for our lives leads us away from our old life of sin. And this path, this life, walking away from our old self and towards who we are in Christ, wearing those new garments, identifying with, with Christ, this is the blessed life. This is the good life. And this isn't new. Psalm 1 says the exact same thing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What David in Psalm 1 is describing, this, this meditating on the law day and, day and night, James describes as remaining, abiding in the law. And we delight in the law, the, the word of God, because of the Spirit in us. And we don't follow the counsel of the wicked, that is, our old flesh, because we have a newfound love of God's Word rather than our own Word. Blessed is the one who does this in Psalm 1, and ultimately Psalm 1 is pointing to Christ, and blessed is the one through Christ who does this in James 1. This is the good life. This is the definition of the good life, the happy life in the Lord. Putting off our old nature, which Christ has defeated, and walking in the path of righteousness that God has set out for us in his word, which leads James back to what comes out of our mouths again. And we will see this so many times in James. You're never going to want to talk again. Right? So look at James 1.26. 126, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There's an old trope in Christianity that goes something like, Christianity isn't a religion. Finish it for me. It's a relationship. Thank you. So two things. First, this is a false dichotomy and it's not helpful. Don't say it. Secondly, though, James takes issue with this. The Bible has a problem with that. Bumper sticker. So let's just not use it. Christianity is a religion. A religion isn't bad. Religion is just a defined way of living out your faith. Religion is how you show your devotion to your God. That's why there are lots of different religions, because there's lots of different idols out there in the world. Religion is how you show your devotion to your God. In Christianity, religion is the expression of your uh, relationship. To Christ. That's why I said it's a false dichotomy. It's an expression of your relationship to Christ. So it's not either or, it's both. And what James is getting at here is that your devotion to Christ cannot be shown simply by listening to people talk about him. Rather, devotion to Christ is an all of life transformed life way of being all the way down to every little word that comes out of our mouth as jesus says you will be judged by every word all of your life is transformed by christ to believe otherwise is to be again deceived look at verse 26 so 
So we're going to get more into all of the ways that our words show the darkness of our hearts. But I don't want to tell you all about it yet because we have chapter 3 to talk about all of our bad words and chapter 4 to talk about those things. So this is just an appetizer. James is introducing this idea for us. So that is... Uh, on, on, on the negative side, one cannot claim to be a born-again Christian who has been made new by the Spirit and yet have a consistently unrestrained tongue. Bad fruit is evidence of a serious root problem, a faith problem. And on the, so that's the negative side. On the positive side, there is good fruit. There is good fruit that springs from a heart that is implanted with the Word. What is the good fruit? Verse 27, religion that is pure, so that expression of your relationship with Christ, a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. So, so when the Spirit is in us, when the Word is implanted in us, then the fruit of that, the real life expression of the will of God being born out in our lives is that our lives begin to reflect God's heart. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says this about God's heart. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 68 is this, this, this uh, Psalm 68 is a song of praise for God's greatness. And one of the attributes of God, which is worthy of praise, is this. Father, he is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. That is God in his holy habitation. So God's worthiness of praise and worship, his, his good and perfect character is expressed in his care for orphans and widows. That's God's character. So naturally, because his spirit is in us, his word is in us, his will is in us, that will be expressed in our lives. We'll just start looking like God. In that way, God is also perfectly holy, James says, unstained by the world. And so because his spirit is in us, we also have a desire to pursue his holiness. You see what I'm getting at here? Do you see what James is, is, is getting at here? We are saying putting off the flesh and putting on those things of the spirit. And these are those things of the spirit which we see in the word. We see these things in God's word. God's word is like a talking mirror for us. And looking intently into the word of God, being quick to listen to the word of God rather than our own flesh and our own ideas and our own desires, we are more and more transformed into what God is creating in us through his spirit as a kind of first fruits of the new creation, going back to verse 18. So this James's argument is just building slowly, 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 and more and more we're seeing the gospel in all that he says, aren't we? I think there's a temptation, as we talked about in the first week, to read James as all of these rules. It's not that. It is the picture of the transformed life, the picture of what Christ is accomplishing in us. Amen? Let's go to him.